0: Welcome to the Bagwell Center podcast. This podcast features lectures and symposia hosted by the Bagwell Center for the Study of Markets and Economic Opportunity at Kennesaw State University. The Bagwell Center's mission is to provide a platform for an interdisciplinary study of the importance of markets and economic institutions in regard to resource allocation, entrepreneurial activity, economic prosperity, and improved human welfare. Through extracurricular outreach activities such as guest lectures, film screenings, workshops, fellowships, and reading groups, the Bagwell Center places an emphasis on educating students about the foundations of market institutions and examining the related impact of government policy in a mixed economy. For more information about the Bagwell Center and its programs, please visit coles.kennesaw.edu slash econop.
1: All right. Well, thank you, uh, Tim, for the uh, nice introduction and um, let me start off with uh, asking you guys a question. So in case you can't see this, these are Powerball tickets, right? And so the, uh, the question for you is when you, you think of the Powerball, right, what is one word that comes to mind? What, what was it? I said loss. Loss. Okay. Anything else? Unpredictable. Unpredictable. Taxation. Okay. Anything else? Money. Money. Anything else? There's a few other words I'm, I'm looking for here. Chance. Okay. Winning. Okay. There we go. So, um, I've got a uh, uh, some things that I want to um, talk about with the lottery, and in a little bit. Uh, so it's also going to provide a really important uh, kind of example that we can come back to. Uh, when we talk about contests and the research on contests and there's also a story about the uh, the Spanish Christmas lottery that uh, we will come back to but anyways I'll uh, start off with a quick outline for what we are going to look at today. I want to start with just the uh, talking a little bit about the economics degree in graduate school in uh, economics then kind of briefly talk about some big themes from economics that um, I don't know if you're kind of interested in economics, and the economics degree and potentially graduate school in economics uh, are, are useful things to, to think about. And then this last part that we will we'll, uh, focus on, um, I've got uh, two doctoral students right now that I've got projects with. And I've got one student who's on a postdoc who is, uh, is going to be on the, the market this year. And so uh, we'll talk about those, uh, those research projects with um, uh, kind of current and then one former uh, doctoral student. Uh, lots of other research projects going on but since we were going to be talking about uh, economics and graduate school, I thought I'd focus on uh, projects with doctoral students. Now, um, a couple things to note with uh, economics and, and graduate school, so I just finished serving a five-year term as our director of the economics doctoral program. and. Um, I would say, you know, if you're interested in economics as or either as an undergraduate degree, a uh, master's in economics, PhD in economics, it is a great time to be in economics. Um, I mean, in terms of the undergraduate uh, degree, uh, our undergraduate majors, so I'm in the, as it says down there, Krannert School of Management, among uh, uh, our undergraduate manag- management students, um, the, uh, ours is I guess a business economics uh, type degree, but they are among the, um, the very top, if not the top, in terms of starting salary. I think we kind of alternate from year to year with a few of the other majors, but uh, I believe last year we were, uh, the, the highest in starting salary, and our, um, uh, placement rate, uh, you know, I mean, basically, uh, we've got companies that are looking for students who have these types of quantitative and... Um, you know, data analytic, business analytic type skills. I mean, there are, there are lots of jobs out there and the starting salaries are, are great. Uh, the other thing I would say too along those lines is that, um, you know, when we have our alumni come back and talk, um, so we have uh, on Fridays, we kind of have this time period blocked, where we have uh, under, um, we have a, in the morning we have alumni come and talk to uh, undergraduates, and in the afternoon we have uh, speakers in for the uh, the MBA students and the graduate students and I mean the, the when our alumni come back I mean they 're working on just really really interesting problems uh, kind of one recent example of one this was about two weeks ago we have a, an alumni um, who is, works with uh, the Cleveland Cavaliers and uh, on the business analytics side, not the sports analytics side, but looking at uh, ticket pricing and food pricing and all of those types of things. And really fascinating talk and, and interesting to hear what he's working on. But um, but yeah, I mean, I think it is. It's it's a great time to be in economics between math and uh, statistics and economics and computer science, uh, business analytics. All of those types of things. There are there are just a lot of interesting and exciting things going on uh, right now. And along those lines, I wanted to point you to uh, two organizations that uh, I've been involved with that are, you know, I would definitely recommend and I think are a great source of information if you're uh, interested in either one of these things. So, you know, one thing that is, um, I don't know, really impressive to me is just how much more information there is now about these types of things, um, you know, a career in economics or going to graduate school in economics than there was when, uh, when I was a student. And I just want to, because it's not, may not be entirely obvious, I wanted to at least show you uh, the American Economic Association website, which, first off, all kinds of interesting, you know, stories on the main page about research, um, you know, how public policy affects private schools, long-run effects of of school racial diversity on political identity down here at the bottom, um, effects of DNA databases on the deterrence and detection of offenders, I mean, all kinds of of research, um, you know, highlights. But the thing that is probably most relevant for you would be, if you click on this resources over here, they have resources for students and uh, they also have when you, uh, when it's time to get on uh, the job market, uh, so uh, if you decide to go to graduate school in economics, uh, for example, um, they have a lot of things on um, uh, the econ job market uh, on here. The, uh, let me click on the thing for students real fast though. So you can see, learn about career opportunities in graduate school and all of those types of things. Um, so again, great resource, lots of information, um, and I you know, can't say enough good things about the American Economic Association, I really like the things that they have been pushing. Um, the other thing I would point out, this is another organization that I've been involved with the last few years, and this is the, uh, the Math Alliance. And if this is um, uh, it's a group that at first may not sound like it's that closely related to, to economics. In particular, if you read their you know, welcome statement here, our goal is simple, we want to be sure that every underrepresented or underserved American student with the talent and the ambition has the opportunity to earn a doctoral uh, degree in a Mathematical or, or Statistical Science. Having said that, though, right, they are interested in not just kind of direct math and, uh, you know, stats degrees, uh, but also related fields. So, like biostatistics, uh, data analytics, business analytics, uh, computer science to some degree, economics, and so on. And um, they do a ton of, of really good things. I mean, so it's underrepresented and underserved uh, communities. So, this would be everything from, um, uh, gender, which in economics, I don't know if you've you know, ever seen much on this, but we do have a large uh, gender gap uh, in economics. Um, this would also be for the things like first-generation college students. Um, and you know they do uh, they start with high schools, everything from Appalachia to inner city high schools, um, and you know everything in between um, it 's it's a great organization, like I said um, they 've got faculty mentors, all kinds of things, and um, it 's actually currently housed at purdue right now um, and i 've got you know some friends over in the math department, and that's they 've got me plugged into that and so um, I've been, been working with them the, for the last few years and I can't say enough good things about uh, that. Anyways, having said that, let's go back and then I want to talk about uh, the, the next couple things on the list. Okay, so um, some themes from economics, right? So before we get to the research on contests, I think you've got at least kind of have some lay of the land. Um, and so, you know, kind of as we transition from the economics degree to some themes from economics, I'll start off by talking a little bit about economic theory, why would we you know, care about economic theory, and in particular game theory, which is uh, the area that um, all of my uh, research and teaching uh, is in. I teach uh, game theory from the undergraduate, MBA, and uh, PhD. Uh, levels and, um, and then we'll kind of hit some of these big points that um, I think are kind of central to, to economics. Um, it's kind of hard to imagine economics without uh, those elements and then we'll, we'll transition on to this research on contests. So the first piece is abstraction, right? And so this is, uh, these are some of the, uh, the images from Picasso's bull series which uh, I'm trying to remember, I think there are maybe like 13 in total, so this is not all of them but you, you can get the idea, right? So you start off with a very realistic bull up in the top corner, and then as you transition over to the, the last image over there, I mean, it's a stick figure, basically, right? I mean, we can tell it's a bull, right? It kind of captures the essence of a bull, but uh, it doesn't necessarily look like some of these more realistic ones. I mean, this one in particular looks pretty good, but that one up there's not, uh, not too bad. Um, so, you know, what's, what's you know, the whole point of this? Um, so in economics, and in particular um, economic theory, the um, uh, abstraction is a, is a big part of what we do. And I've got a quote here that I was going to mention from uh, Hal Varian, who is um, currently the, uh, the chief economist at uh, Google, and let's see. The whole point of a model is to give a simplified representation of reality. A model is supposed to reveal the essence of what is going on. Your model should be reduced to just those pieces that are required to make it work. And so that's. That's one of the, the kind of the tensions, I think, and one of the things that um, maybe not surprises people, but, but it's definitely something that people observe when you first start thinking about economic models, is that we do strip away a lot of the details. But again, the focus is to try to get uh, you know, um, this emphasis on what are the key parts, right? What, what do we really need in order to be thinking about understanding that particular environment? Okay. So having said that, let me do the one other piece that, and then we'll talk a little bit about uh, game theory. So, right, we've got Spock up there. Depending on which one of the Spocks that you uh, uh, identify with, um, so what's what's the what's the issue here, right? So uh, I think sometimes we think of. When we think of rational choice, we think of something along the lines of like Spock or Vulcan philosophy. And so I guess first let me start off by stating what uh, rational choice is and then talk a little bit about Vulcan philosophy and, uh, and how that's a caricature of something that really is tied to uh, Adam Smith and, and kind of our foundations in economics on, and rational choice. So in rational choice, uh, our, our kind of assumption is that the alternative chosen by a decision maker is at least as good according to his or her preferences as every other available alternative. And so, as I mentioned, we we often think of this kind of uh, homo economicus as kind of roughly being equivalent to a Spock or or a Vulcan philosophy. Um, interestingly enough, right, the whole Spock character was created as a kind of caricature of Stoic philosophy. But um, before getting to that, I'll mention one quote so you can kind of see, uh, get, you know, get a glimpse of Vulcan philosophy. And um, if you haven't seen it, because this is an oldie but a goodie, Star Trek IV, The Voyage Home. Uh, and this is a quote by uh, T. Plana Hoth, who is a Vulcan high priestess. And she says, logic is the cement of our civilization with which we ascend from chaos using reason as our guide. So that's kind of the stereotypical Vulcan focusing on reason and not having any emotion. Now, coming back to uh, to Adam Smith and uh, the Wealth of Nations, Stoic philosophy was influential for Adam Smith And uh, in particular, his concept of the invisible hand has been associated with Stoic providentialism. And what's the issue there? So um, Adam Smith's part of this uh, kind of Scottish Enlightenment period, definitely influenced by a uh, a neo-Stoicism that kind of originates in Northern Europe and then migrates to, to Scotland in kind of this period preceding Adam Smith's writing of things like The Wealth of Nations and The Theory of Moral Sentiments. And so to kind of get an idea of of what we mean by Stoic philosophy, here's a quote from uh, The Meditations by Marcus Aurelius. Whatever man thou meetest with, immediately say to thyself, what opinion has this man about good and bad? For if with respect to pleasure and pain, and the causes of each, and with respect to fame and ignominy, death and life, he has such and such opinions, it will seem nothing wonderful or strange to me if he does such and such things. So again, this is a, a Roman emperor, right, well, well before uh, an Enlightenment period, and uh, talking about people making choices according to essentially their preferences, right, the things that they think of as providing pleasure or pain, right? And um, so if you kind of put that... Uh, concept of people choosing according to preferences along with this, this kind of stoic uh, notion of providence which again to quote Marcus Aurelius would be something uh, along the lines of the universe is wisely ordered. Right so people are choosing according to their individual preferences and things are ordered well it's only a hop skip and a step until we're to put people into a market right and people buying the things that they want firms maximizing profits are going to give us efficient markets all right so that gets us up through kind of the uh the the main pieces there so let me kind of come back for just a second and i want to talk about uh economic theory then and game theory so you can mute this for a second so why why study theory right um So, I've got a quote here from Leonardo da Vinci for you. So, he who loves practice without theory is like the sailor who boards a ship without a rudder and compass and never knows where he may cast. Right? So, you know, abstraction, yes, it's a double edged sword in the sense that we're going to have to, you know, eliminate some of the details that may potentially matter. But on the other hand, right, it gives us a a rudder and a compass, right? It gives us a direction to head uh, towards. And then as we find, Uh, mistakes and and things, and we can think about how to incorporate those into our models. Now what about game theory, right? So why would we be interested in game theory? Well, game theory is a branch of applied mathematics that gained momentum after uh, John von Neumann and Oscar Morgenstern published a book entitled The Theory of Games and Economic Behavior in 1944. Now um, before talking about that book, I should at least point out John von Neumann, absolutely fascinating character. You know, you think about people making significant contributions to one field. Uh, John von Neumann made significant contributions to mathematics, physics, economics, computer science and statistics, which is, uh, I don't know, mind-blowing to me. But um, he also, during World War II, uh, worked on the Manhattan Project and um, uh, the whole kind of concept of, of mutually assured destruction. He was one of the people involved with that. Um, anyways, though, this book, Theory of Games and Economic Behavior, again, economic theory, right? Um, and yes, you know, we can have movies like Beautiful Minds that are about economic theory that have uh, an actor who, you know, not only can play, you know, a mathematical, game theoretical uh, economist and the gladiator, right, which is pretty impressive, um, but um, the… Uh, You know, it's not going to be every day that we see books about economic theory, right, that are discussed on front pages of major newspapers. So, when the theory of games and economic behavior was published, there was a review of it on the front page of the New York Times, which is, again, pretty mind blowing if you think about it. This is a book about economic theory, but it was, it was, even at the time, people knew it was going to be hugely influential. Kind of up to that point, economics had been focused on perfect competition, right, and competition is one of the things we're going to talk about in a minute. And so that's lots of you know, small actors, small firms and small uh, consumers are small relative to the market, and then they just kind of each focus on their problem without thinking about the consequences of those choices, right? And um, the theory of games and economic behavior, it, it wasn't all the way there. Right, in terms of the, the machinery that we would uh, like kind of ultimately see in economics as providing these foundations for microeconomic theory. Um, but it was, it was getting really, really close. And so people could already see that there was going to be this paradigm shift. And that would move us away from kind of perfect competition, which had been the focus for so long, kind of moving into this this kind of bigger uh, view of the world. So what does game theory do? So game theory analyzes situations in which people interact by breaking those situations down into a set of players. What are the strategies that are available to each player? And then how do the combinations of strategies chosen by the players map into outcomes and then ultimately payoffs for the players? And most games involve a chance, skill, and strategy in varying uh, proportions. And chance was one of the words I heard with lottery. And again, that's something we'll we'll be talking about here uh, in just a little bit. Um, So why study game theory, right? So that's what game theory is. Why study game theory? Since the mid-1970s, game theory has become a basic methodology in the management and social sciences. And I've got a quote for you here. This is uh, from Raymond Smith, who was a former chairman and CEO of Verizon Communications. So coming from the industry side, not the academic side. And uh, he states that the game theory approach to business has resulted in strategic initiatives From joint ventures to mergers to new business development that would have been unheard of in a traditional planning environment. Right? So, I mean, obviously it's going to be important for the foundations of economics, in particular microeconomic theory, but also uh, in terms of applications now um speaking of applications right so game theory is going to give us a convenient way to model the strategic interactions among you know groups of agents and it has been applied to all fields of economics so just to give you a few examples for international trade levels of imports and exports and prices depend not only on things like your own tariffs right but the also on the tariffs of other countries You can think about labor markets, right, internal labor markets and promotion uh, tournaments, right? So what do we mean by a promotion tournament? So you've got uh, kind of a a group of of people who are working and then one of them is going to ultimately be promoted to some new position, right? So that would be something like a a labor market uh, promotion tournament. In that case, your chances depend not only on how hard you work, right, but how hard the people around you are working. You can think about industrial organization, right, where game theory has played an important role. And um, there, right, the price uh, depends not only on your own output, but also on the output of your competitor, right, and you can think of lots of examples and and applications of, of that type of thing. Now, along those lines I've got a short little video here that I wanted to show you guys to give you an example of a game, and so let me switch it to that real fast. Okay. So, uh, backstory on this. There's this uh, British TV show, and um, there's a kind of a sequence of things that happens, right? And they're going to build up a pot of money. And the pot of money is actually going to be pretty big. And then once they get this pot of money, they're going to play this game right here. So there's this other part that we haven't seen where they built up this pot of money, and then now they're going to play, play a game, right? So let's, let's watch a little bit of that, and I think… We're at the right spot. I know you're the last two
0: people in the country I have to explain this to. You. But you have two final golden balls. You each have a golden ball with the word split written inside. You each have a golden ball with the word steel written inside. You will make a conscious choice of choosing the split or the steel ball. If you both choose the split ball, you split today's jackpot of £100,150 and you go home with £50,075. If one of you splits and one of you steals, whoever chooses the steal will go home
1: with £100,150. Okay, so let me just stop for there, one second. £100,000, uh, one pound is about, uh, I think, $1.4, so it's about $140,000. Right? Just imagine yourself, one person on each side of the table, you've got these splitter steel balls, and you've got $140,000, right, that, uh, between the two of you. And the person chooses the split ball goes home with nothing. If you both choose the steel ball, you go home with nothing. Okay? Before I ask you to choose, so, so again, just to cover the, uh, you know, go over those rules again. If they both choose split, right, then they split the money. If one chooses split, one chooses steal, uh, the one that chose split goes home with nothing, and the person who chose steal gets the whole hundred forty thousand dollars. If they both choose steal, then they both get nothing, right? So those are the rules. Now let's watch them talk for a second, and we'll. Show you don't share Before I ask you to choose, I think you have some talking to do to each I just they were tears, and they were real tears,
0: oh. and genuinely I month. am going to split this. That's 50,000. Un, i it's unbelievable. I'm oh. very, very goal 50,000. If I stole off you, every single person there would go away and pitch me. There's no way I could, I mean, everyone who knew me would we just be disgusted if I stole them. Well,
1: I'm going to watch this, and I'm going to leave yeah. it. Please. I can look yeah. you with me, sir, I can look you with me, I can tell you, I can look you with me, sir, Okay. So, what do you think is going to happen? She's going to steal. She's going to steal. Okay. What about him? What do you think he's going to do? Split. So, split. So, we think he, that uh, he's going to split. She's going to steal. Okay. So, so, a couple things to note, right? Right off the bat on this. Uh, so, you know, we could analyze this as a game. The equilibrium prediction is that one person should split. One person should steal. Right now we may not be able to necessarily identify which person is going to steal and which person is going to split but that's the equilibrium prediction right and um, so they've put these people in a really bad situation right they've built up a pot of money they put them in a game where the equilibrium prediction is you're going to have something exciting which makes for good television but uh, is is going to be kind of a strange uh, interpersonal situation so anyways let's uh, let's see what happens Steve, choose
0: either the split or the
1: Oh Oh, man, that never gets old. (laughs) Yeah, he did have a little something. They're going to interview him here in a second. He's a little bitter. No, no doubt. I mean, that's
0: $70,000.
1: Yeah, he's a little bitter. all right. So let me switch back over to here for a second. Okay. And I'll mute this one. The, um, all right. So, so coming back to what, uh, what we were talking about. Um, so game theory and in research in game theory. So there actually is a paper, uh, it was a 2012 paper in management science that was written by Richard Thaler, who uh, won the uh, 2017 Nobel Prize for his work in behavioral economics, along with two other co-authors, which was entitled Split or Steal, uh, Cooperative Behavior When the Stakes Are Large because um, uh, in experimental economics, right, kind of, you know, what behavioral experimental, what Thaler won for, uh, well, uh, he's one of the people who's won in experimental behavioral economics. Um, the, uh, we, we, we take, you know, experimental subjects, we put them in the lab, and, uh, and we have them, you know, play games. And, um, but most of the time, the stakes are small, so it's normally like 40 bucks for I don't know an hour and a half or something. So this was real money, right? And then and do do things. Um, uh, the things change, and you know basically what they find is that uh, cooperation rates are, are definitely higher than we might expect if people are only uh, have narrow self-interest, and um, uh, uh, there's reciprocity. Is an element of the preferences. So I'll come back to that in a second because I want to talk a little bit more about rational choice. Um, another interesting finding in the paper, though, and this kind of fits with some other uh, experiments as well, that males tend to be less cooperative than females in experiments, uh, but this uh, actually reverses, and older men are actually more cooperative than average, which is kind of an interesting thing. Now, um, thinking about uh, kind of big takeaways from game theory, right, before we, we um, kind of get into some of these these other topics a little bit more. Um, you know, I, it reminds me of, there was an interview I saw a few years back with uh, Susan athy which if you don't know Susan Athey, um she was a, uh, the, the John Bates Clark Medal winner a few years back. First female to win that, and which um, is basically a prize for American uh, young economists and um, uh, you know, definitely a very prestigious kind of among American economists probably, you know, just a little below like a Nobel Prize or something. Um, she also spent a, a number of years as the consulting chief economist at Microsoft and is currently uh, in the Stanford Graduate School of Business. She's done work on a number of things from uh, auction theory, both applied and theoretical, and uh, she was one of the early movers on trying to incorporate machine learning and big data and some of those types of techniques into uh, economics. But coming back to, to Athe, uh she was in an interview asked about her experiences at uh, Microsoft and. Um, what was the most important concept from economics right, that she had for, um, uh, that you know, she shared with her colleagues at Microsoft. And uh, the concept she gave was best response dynamics, right, which is definitely a really useful concept. Right? So best response dynamics, that's uh, when you make a choice, right, you're not only thinking about you know, your own preferences, but you're going to be thinking about what the other person is going to be choosing and you're going to want to try to do the best that you can given what they're doing. But then you're also thinking about you know, them, they're doing the same thing. They're thinking about you and trying to think about what your preferences are and what you're going to do. And so you're, you're trying to do you know, the best that you can with your beliefs about what the other person's going to do. And definitely an important concept. But one, one concept that um, I would probably put uh, you know, second to that is the concept of a strategy. and. This is one of those things that is uh, it's kind of a subtlety, but I, you know, the longer you know, work in game theory, this is one of the things that I, I kind of come back to, I think is one of the most important concepts. And so, um, Burrell in the early 1920s, so we talked about von Neumann. Uh, Burrell and von Neumann were really instrumental in laying the foundations for modern game theory. And most of this work was done, or started in the early 1920s. And, um, and, and Burrell and von Neumann were the two, two uh, mathematicians who were working on this. And um, in, the, in the kind of early conceptions of this uh, Borel called what we now call a strategy, Borel called a method of play, right? And so um, you know, if, if you like that terminology better, that was the original terminology, but now, now we call it a, a strategy. And uh, you know, what, what is a strategy? So you know, some games are really simple like this one that we just saw where they you know, choose split or steal. That would be a strategic form game. Some games are in the extensive form. So in the extensive form, there's a time element, right? We've got to think about who moves when, what do they know at each point at which they move, what are the available actions at each point in which they move, and so on. So in this kind of richer, extensive form environment, a, the, the concept of a strategy is a complete plan of action, right? So we have to think about what a decision maker would do at each point in the game, which they could be called upon to be the decision maker, even if they don't get to that point in the game, right? And so um, just thinking about you know, real-world applications of this, one of the examples that comes up for me is Bill Walsh, which um, you know, totally dates me. So um, to give you an idea of who Bill Walsh is, does anyone re- remember Joe Montana? Yes, OK. So Bill Walsh was the head coach for the San Francisco 49ers back when they were winning Super Bowls with Joe Montana as the quarterback. So this was 81, 84, and 88. Uh, or the three Super Bowls that he won with the San Francisco 49ers. He uh, is known for a bunch of things. The West Coast offense right, is one of his creations. Um, His coaching tree is mind-boggling. Just to list a few people on his his coaching tree, Uh, Mike Holmgrim, uh, Andy Reid, John Harbaugh, Mike McCarthy, Jim Harbaugh. Dennis Green, Tony Dungy, which, you know, being in Indiana, that was so much fun watching Peyton Manning and uh, Tony Dungy back in the day. Lovie Smith, Mike Tomlin, um, fantastic coach, right, and an incredible legacy. Uh, He had a a course on um, uh, leadership that he taught at uh, Stanford Graduate School of Business. There's a book that was written kind of based on some of the materials from that. Uh, course, and it's a great book, highly recommend it, uh, and the name, I think, kind of uh, already highlights uh, you know, some of the things that I think of when I think of Bill Walsh, but the name of the book is, The Score Takes Care of Itself, right, and then to kind of, you know, even follow up on that, here's a quote from Bill Walsh, the culture precedes positive results. Champions behave like champions before they're champions. They have a winning standard of performance before they are winners. Right, so how does this all tie into game theory? So coming back to the strategy concept as a complete plan of action, uh, one of the concepts that Bill Walsh is credited with is scripting, right? And, um, in case you don't know what, what scripting is, um, at the beginning of football games, and this is you know, pretty much every level now. I'm guessing from high school on up, uh, scripting is a is a common practice. And uh, Bill Walsh describes scripting as in this way: scripting is planning. It's contingency planning. The fewer decisions to be made during the game, the better. You don't want to live by your instincts. It's isolating. Each situation that comes up, uh, and establishing what should come up. Right? And then to follow up on that, he says, you make better decisions on Thursdays and Fridays than you do on Sundays. If anybody thinks they can make all of the decisions on Sundays, then that person often is simply hoping to be lucky. So this idea of thinking about all the possible contingencies and trying to think about what you would do in those contingencies, even if you don't get there right, I think uh, is, is really important, and related concepts uh, to scripting would be things like visualization and sports psychology. So uh, I was a student athlete in, um, in college, and I remember when we had sports psychologists come in and do these visualization exercises, and I thought it was so cool. I mean, thinking about, like, so you're in this type of situation, you're really supposed to be focusing on it and thinking carefully about, you know, where things are on the field, uh, you know, what the, it sounds like with the crowd noise, all these types of things, and how you want to perform in that that situation and, and putting yourself in these stressful situations, you know, at least running through uh, what that would look like and how you would like to handle that and so on. Um, you can also think of, of something that's called um, battle proofing or emergency, emergency conditioning uh, in the military, in particular in the special forces, thinking about if, uh, before a raid or something, what are the possible contingencies that we least need to be aware of. Okay, so um, we talked a little bit about abstraction, a little bit about uh, rational choice. The last thing I was going to mention though on rational choice is um, kind of going from that uh, kind of caricature, right, of, of rational choice as, and here I can put the, uh, this image back up here because um, there is something about the, uh, the, the Vulcan, uh, you know, lack of emotion and everything that I think we tend to think about um when we we think of rational choice but i just want to make uh one point real fast oops uh actually i want full screen so hang on Uh, Enter full screen there it is um is uh that in in modern rational choice right there are lots of things that we can include so the player is going to select the action that leads to the outcome he or she most prefers but it's not necessary to assume that players care only about their own monetary gains So individuals may be driven by altruism, fairness, envy, greed, or other psychological considerations, and there's just a ton of work that's been done in the behavioral uh, and experimental uh, realm focusing on those things. However, there is one aspect of, of this kind of caricature that I do think is relatively accurate and should point out, and that is that we are assuming that players are sophisticated and that they can handle complex calculations. Right, So, there may be a need to enrich theory to incorporate things like cognitive biases and bounded rationality and so on and again lots of work that has been done in behavioral economics on this. And to give you one example of the type of thing that I mean when I say, uh, you know, bias, so um, there's, you know, lots of, of examples you could give, but one that I like is the, uh, the win-stay-lose-shift phenomenon, right? So what is this? So if you think about… Um, uh, what is it? Rock, paper, scissors, right? Rock, paper, scissors, shoot. Okay, so three options. So our, the equilibrium, right, it would be that uh, you do each one of them with the same probability, right? If you're doing each one with the same probability, they don't know what you're going to do, right? So anything that they choose is, an equal, uh, is equally likely to win. Do people do that? No. There is a, it, it turns out there's been research on this and there is a bias. And this holds not just for rock, paper, scissors, but this one's kind of interesting. Uh, but the, the bias is that um, this win-stay-lose-shift, right? So if you're doing something that's winning, right, you're more likely to continue to do that even if that's not a, you know, uh, an optimal strategy. right. Now, um, same thing if you lose, right? If you lose, uh, you know, and you're, you're randomizing perfectly, right, that's what you should do the next time. But if you lose, you're, you're more likely to change than, you know, you should be if you were randomizing uh, as in the ways that theory would predict. Now having said that though, um, not only do, do people uh, kind of win, stay, lose, shift. Uh, in games, uh, such as uh, rock, paper, scissors, the way that they shift is actually predictable. Um, you can try this out on your friends if you want. Um, so if, if someone loses, right, the way that they shift tends to be in, in a circle around the rock, paper, scissors. So if they lose with rock, they're more likely to go to paper right, than they are to go to scissors. If they lost with paper, they're more likely to go to scissors than the rock and so on. Right? So there's a, a bias that's making behavior predictable, and if you kind of know this, then you can, on average, beat uh, your opponents, especially sequentially, right? If you know what they're doing, you can always try to be one step ahead, especially if they don't know about Wednesday lose shift. But uh, anyways, there's tons of stuff that's been done on rational choice. Um, One person I would mention uh, on this uh, would be John Elster. He's written lots of good things. Nuts and bolts for the social sciences is one of his books, and he uh, also wrote an article, uh, this is a number of years back now, in the Journal of Economic Literature, Emotions and Economic Theory, that uh, was really uh, quite good. Um, all right, so coming back to the last point um, for a second before we get into the, um, the research on contest. What time do we end? I've got five minutes left? All right, perfect. Okay, so de- um, uh, decentralization, right? So decentralization is something that we, we really like in economics. and. Um, we can think about uh, information processing. So here's a, a quote from Ken Arrow, Nobel Prize winner for his work on uh, social choice, um, which is an interesting problem that would be worth talking about at some point. But also for his work on general equilibrium. But he states, uh, for the first time, uh, from the first time I understood economic principles, I was always concerned that any system be operated on an efficient basis, which meant decentralization because knowledge is not concentrated anywhere. And so that's kind of the um, uh, the the basic uh idea there is that information is distributed if we want to efficiently process information we want to be decentralized and then the other thing i was just going to briefly mention was about competition because we want to talk about contests briefly so a um uh, and here's a quote from george stigler 1982 nobel prize for his work on regulation which is going to be relevant to the the point we're going to make here in just a second so adam smith had one overwhelmingly important triumph Right? He put into the center of economics the system of analysis of the behavior of individuals pursuing their self-interest under conditions of competition. So competition is really important in economics. We tend to think about competition as leading to efficiency and things like that. Lots of work that's been done on antitrust policy which is all about encouraging competition by limiting market power of the strongest firms. Now um, one of, if you had to have kind of one takeaway from contests and competition um, the thing I'd probably say is the level playing field effect. And so there's lots of work dating back to the 90s uh, that looks at this um, and uh, various configurations of it. Um, one of them, I'll just talk about one of them real, real quickly. Uh, one of them is that um, if you have a group of bidders right, who are going to be bidding on you know, an auction or in a competitive environment, um, it may be beneficial for you to, to eliminate the the person who has the highest valuation, right? So think about that for a second. If you're if you care about the bids that are gonna come in, right? So or think about this as like total effort in a contest, right? So you've got these people who are gonna be competing, and you care about the total effort that people are putting in, it might be the case that you want to eliminate the strongest one, right? Effort may actually go up in equilibrium if you take out the strongest one. Why is that? Because there's a discouragement effect. If you have one really strong player and the rest of them are down here, if you eliminate this, then competition is going to rise between everyone else, right? So anything that you can do, and and there's again lots of ways that this applies, but anything you can do to level the playing field um, is going to, in general, increase total effort. Okay, so I promised that we'd uh, have this story about uh, uh, the lottery and... um, uh... the christmas lottery and so let me pull that up real fast and so this um, this comes back to some of the the recent research on contests. so the spanish christmas lottery this story i um, borrowing this from one of my co-authors michael mabuson is another uh, interesting character uh... 1977 los angeles times article is where he found this and he uses this to motivate the role of chance right we said chance was our our lottery word that we were looking for Um, And the story goes as follows that um, there's this Spanish Christmas lottery, it's held on December 22nd every year since 1812, Uh, it's one of the largest lotteries in the world, over 2 billion euros in prizes awarded every year. Um, Key feature though, it's more like a raffle, right, than a a traditional lottery like the Powerball, in the sense that uh, they print a set of tickets, the winning ticket is going to be drawn, so there is going to be a winner, right? Uh, in the lottery. And if you want a particular ticket, you're going to have to, number that is, you're going to have to search for and find it. So the story is that in the mid-1970s, a man hunted for a lottery ticket uh, with the last two digits 48, right? And uh, he goes and he has to search around, you know, villages around where he lives to find such a ticket. He finds such a ticket, ends up winning a jackpot, and is interviewed by his local newspaper and asked him why he was so intent on finding a ticket that ended in the number 48. And he told his newspaper, I dreamed of the number 7 times 7. And 7 times 7 is not 48. (laughs) Exactly, yes. So the point of the story is that uh, luck, right? Luck is something that is uh, really important, chance, in contests. So to briefly talk about these three contests, um, or these three projects in contests. The the one contest this is with a uh, major Richard Mickelson who is part of this U.S. Air Force uh, faculty pipeline program. He's going to be graduating this year and starting at the Air Force Academy in the uh, the fall. And, and what we're looking at is how contests uh, you can vary the role that chance plays in the contest, right? By the, uh, by changing the game, right? And so how can you change the game? Turns out. Adding dimensions, right? So we're thinking about a a multi-dimensional conflict, and and by changing the number of dimensions, you can uh, change the, or uh, you know, affect the 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 amount of of or the role that chance plays in the contest. So what does this look like? Strong players want low-dimensional conflicts. They want to go toe to toe. Right, A weak player wants to make the, complex, uh, the contest as complex as possible, have as many dimensions as possible. And uh, the co-author, uh, Mal Buesen has written two uh, Harvard Business uh, Review books that kind of talk about applications of this. And there's lots of them in business and, um, and, and in other fields. And I'm pretty much at time, aren't I? You're, you're close. Okay. If you want time
0: for questions, then we'll be a good time. For
1: you. All right. Well, let's go ahead and stop at that then.
0: Thank you for listening to the Bagwell Center podcast. For more content like this, please be sure to subscribe. And for more information about the Bagwell Center and its programs, please visit us online at coleskennesawedu slash econop.